I'm John Gilhooley, director of Wigmore Hall, and it's my great pleasure to interview a fellow Irishman uh, for this special Wigmore Hall podcast on the art of the song recital at Wigmore Hall and focusing in particular on Robin Trichler's residency here, which is his most significant presence in the hall, comprising the best part of six concerts or so, six appearances over the next 12 months. And we'll go through some of those uh, concerts in detail. But Robin, of course, is a very questioning artist who explores deeply whatever he sings. His attention to text is what makes him one of the most important leader singers of his generation. And he conveys his discoveries with great eloquence. He's an Irish tenor, but he certainly doesn't always sound Irish when he sings. And we will explore the concept of the seasons as well as lots, lots of Schumann during the season ahead. So I think we should start with the residency and this idea of the seasons. First of all, we look at a wonderful winter journey which you put together. Yes, the whole idea of the seasons came sort of after talking to you, John, about this residency and appearing for three concerts in, in during the season, three solo recitals. And I wanted to make a programme that would encompass the entire year. And I started to look at, at various different themes and things, but slowly, slowly, the thing that came out was the, the actual times of years of the recitals themselves. And when I started to research it a little bit, I found that there were fantastic songs written in the seasons of the composer's lifetimes. So, for instance, with the Schubert, all they're not songs about winter. They're songs that were written during his winters. Um, but, and they're, but they're not all sad songs. Not at all. Uh, no, uh, not at all. And there are some very, very recognisable tunes in there. But it is just we take songs from 1814 to 1828 so his basically his entire writing career and we explore songs that were written in that period we've been lucky a little bit in that i've had to choose a different version of a song to get the date right but otherwise we're it's been pretty accurate and just just as you go along that line the songs that get closer to his his death his young death his own mortality the poetry he uses and chooses to to express this well what's interesting it it does change um the latest two songs in the program uh, are uh, winterabend und die sterne and winterabend is perhaps one of my favorite songs of schubert it's quite long for a schubert song and nothing happens it is a miracle of b flat f major e flat he talks only about what he can see and the stillness around him. And the music evokes this incredible position where he is at totally relaxed and at rest. Things can come and go, but he's at rest. And in the Sterne, he's looking up at the stars, the same type of image, but more querying as the, and asking the stars to, to bless him uh, as his life goes on. It's very different to some of the earlier songs, which may be looking somebody else looking back, a father holding a child, uh, somebody looking back at the at uh, something that's happened in their past. They're, they're somehow more present and more uh, mature. And is it is it an acceptance of his fate, do you think? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think it's an it's a thing of somebody getting older. 
and accepting the world around them and what they can change and what they can't. So then you join us again mid-January, about the 14th of January, and mm-hmm. we explore Schumann's spring and fall. Yeah, I've been rather daring to call it that. Schumann is somebody I, I haven't sung a lot of. I've sung Dichtelieber, I've sung Kernelieber, but I haven't explored a lot of the other repertoire. And this was such a fantastic chance to look at so many songs that I, I just, I'd heard, but I'd never really delved into. And as I did, I began to realise that there's there's a parallel line in Schumann somehow. There's his music and there's his life. One affects the other, but somehow he manages to keep working despite his change in his mental capacity and towards his depression. And in this program, I'm doing songs from 1840, which was the magical year of Dichterlieder and Kernelieder and Frauenlieder und Leben, this incredible year where he wrote so many things, including the Liederkreis Opus 39, which we'll do that night. And we're going to 1850, and he didn't really write many songs after that. But there's a period where I've chosen from about 1850 of songs that reflect his mental attitude at that time of looking for rest, looking for peace, looking to be taken away out of this. And so we go through the societal on these two lines. And at the very beginning, I've taken a winter song. So I'm I'm cheating slightly, but I'm taking a winter song to connect with the Schubert. I'm taking a winter song about these two men who divide and go on different paths. One stays on land, one becomes a sailor. And then later on, we'll see them coming back together just before we hear of the rests and the requiems. And of course, this particular concert is with Graham Johnson, who's been central to your development as a leader singer and and developing your interest and your knowledge. Graham is an inspiration. Graham is one of the most miraculous people, incredible artist, such a generous performer and a generous person. I have to say I'm incredibly grateful to be his friend. It is such an honour and an experience every time to play with him. He is so knowledgeable and yet he doesn't impose that upon you. He allows you to be the artist you want to be. He may guide you and say that's not the best choice of style. or And with this programme, he's the only person I consult with the Schumann because I I just need a little bit of guidance um, in some of the songs. But he... Of course, he's the master programme builder, so we all learn from him. He really, really is. Um, And I was absolutely delighted when uh, he accepted playing this Schumann program um, because I've not done Schumann with him and I, it'll be a very exciting occasion. You join us with Malcolm Martin who's also in residence this season so the two of you have residences but we, we uh, somehow dovetail to get you together for the October program. Yeah well we Malcolm and I have worked quite a lot together um, and he's a wonderful artist to be with. Uh, he's also great company. He's very funny and he's a great singer. He's very uh, intuitive in how to put something across in the voice. And so he's he's great to rehearse with and to bounce ideas from. Um, I was very lucky to be invited to do some recordings with him in Albra of Britain. And that's sort of where we cemented our, our friendship and also cemented our, our working relationship. And I'm so glad that he was available to open this uh, Schubert concert with me in this residency. It'll be great. And then we move on to, of course, the summer programme, which we look forward to very much indeed. And that's with Simon Lepper. Yes, Simon and I went to the Royal Academy of Music together. He was the year ahead of me and he was already a bit of a star. Um, He's a very talented musician and everybody sort of wanted to work with him. And he came and asked me if I'd sing Schönemüllerin with him. And it was going to be my first Schönemüllerin. And... Since that time, we have had a, enjoyed a very close relationship making song recitals together. He loves discovering new music 
and he's also very well versed in the core repertoire and he's somebody I go to often when I'm learning something to talk through how something might sound the tempos of something and he's he's such a good colleague to have to be, to be able to do that so Robin you you were born and studied in Ireland and mm-hmm. we're we're a nation of storytellers do you think that that your education particularly at the Royal Irish Academy and the various teachers and influencers that you met along the way there helped you uh, find this love of art song because it's it's not something that every young singer takes on and it's certainly not something that young singers do well and and do as well as you have done it was the very from the very beginning i had a wonderful teacher named paul deegan and his motto his mantra is everything starts with the text and we would have entire lessons where you don't sing a note. You're just talking about the poem and not just the poem, but the period of the poem, the style of the poem. We would go to the National Gallery and look at art from that period and just to be able to immerse yourself somewhat in that time. That has influenced me no end. That is where I begin uh, every time I start a, a program. There has to be something that catches my imagination not just in the music, but in what you're going to say on a recital stage. It is all you have is you, the color and the words, and you've got to make them all work together. The Academy of Music in Dublin was a fabulous place for that. I learned both the singing and the art from Paul, and I learned how to learn, how to study, how to apply myself from another teacher, my piano teacher named Anthony Galavin. And also I had a history teacher, a theory history teacher named Bernadette Marmion, who herself is a fantastic song composer. And I learned so much in how she approached writing a song. And I was very lucky to sing some of her things while I was there and subsequently, of course. So I had a great team of people who who worked really well and who connected with me. And I remember you singing recitals in your early 20s, which is, is quite young, but just being put in front of an audience, whether it was 20 people or 100 people in Ireland, many, many times at that stage in your career, I presume helped you to to begin to fine tune your art and, and oh, the stamina that you need. Very definitely. This, and this, as you say, stamina is very important. No, I very definitely, um, when I came to London and I came to study at the academy here, I was quite amazed at the amount of experience I had had. I didn't realize it at the time. And not just me in Dublin, but plenty of other great artists who, as students, had lots of opportunity to go out and sing because people will go and listen to a song recital in Dublin. It, it, um, they, they love the, this, the voice. Here, I found stu- students of a similar age hadn't had that experience. Um, I was very song-centered when I was studying here. Um, I really didn't feel I was ready for opera. I felt I was something else, but I felt the intimacy of the song is something I could examine myself without without feeling that I had to compete with anything like an orchestra or a very large auditorium. And that's where my efforts really were placed when I came here. I noticed that you're very generous. You turn up at other singers' song recitals. Do you learn from watching more established singers, other young singers, your peers? I love going to concerts. Since my very early days of student, uh, being a music student, Bernadette Marmion told me, go to every concert you can and keep a diary of everything you hear. And so I have diaries from my college years of all the symphony concerts that I'd go to on a Friday night in Dublin, the chamber music concerts that John Ruddock would throw in, 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 yes, in he, Dublin. He was one of our great impresarios for, a truly for, for amazing those man. Who, who don't know. So I, I got into the habit of going to the concerts and I still go to as many concerts as I, as I can get to. Um, 
both opera, violin recitals, symphony concerts. And of course, I love hearing other singers because there's so many other singers will sing repertoire that I will never be able to sing. Uh, you go and hear somebody sing fabulous Strauss that it's not going to be for me as the soprano sings these incredible songs. And I, I love learning these things. Um, I have shelves of scores at home of songs that I will probably never sing, but I can look at them and go through them and find other repertoire via that path. Let's just talk about about your career and because you're in your early 40s now. You arrived here in in what year? Nine, I came as a student in 1999. Okay, I was, so you're here. I was very young for a postgrad. The best, the best part of 20 years yeah. in the UK. And I think it's good for, for everybody, for audiences listening, but also for young singers to hear about the challenges, the struggles, because it, it is you've got to be really committed to get where you are now. Um, it's a very tough road. And uh, let's just talk through that and through the, through your various teachers. I know that you studied uh, intensely with the Eris de Lacroix, who, will, mm. who we'll talk about and who helped you greatly uh, in terms of, of technique. And, and and acquiring the the stage presence mm. that that you have now, but just that that two decades here and how you've changed and evolved as a person and as an artist. It's been a very long and difficult road. Uh, I can't. Uh, it is a huge amount of hard work. Singing is a huge pleasure, and you only do it if you really enjoy it. Yes, you're not going to be a multimillionaire. You're not. There's not enough money. There's huge amounts of stress. And it's constant uh, caring for the voice and constant learning. When I came here, I had come from Ireland where there's no competition, really. And you were singing with the concert orchestras. You were singing in in choral societies around the place and you were doing recitals uh, because there weren't huge numbers of singers. And being a tenor really helped also. In the singing career, you have to get used to constant rejection. You audition, I don't know how many times in a year. And if you got one job out of it, you'd be doing very well. People are looking, f- the, the voice is so um, individual. Indeed. People are looking for a, a particular sound to fill that particular concert. And if you don't suit it, it's not, a, you have to learn that it's not a rejection of you. It's just that that's not what you're looking for. Mm. Somebody else will like it. But to getting through that can be very disheartening. And the most important thing I, I, I learned was that you cannot compare yourself to anybody. You will see other singers from your stable of college going off and being very successful very quickly. And, you know, and you, you, opportunities will come for other people. That's great for them. And I've always been delighted when I see friends going off and getting great opportunities and great work. But you can't compare yourself to them. You can't think, well, I'm six months older. I should be there. I sing, oh, I have a higher note than that. I should be doing that. It doesn't work that way. Your time will come, but you have to be very patient and keep working and working and working. And, no, and always be ready. And always be ready. if necessary. If, yes. Uh, that With time, that helps because you have more repertoire that you don't have to learn something in a panic, although that has happened as well. It's a difficult path. And do you think that musicians, young students are are being adequately prepared for the challenges of professional life because, you know, in this social media age, in this digital age, there are increasing pressures around presentation, around around comparisons as well, which you mentioned. And 
we see a lot of performance anxiety. We see a lot of students, young professionals in, in their early to mid-twenties, sometimes in, in a lot of trouble. Um, I think, and I, I, have, I can base this on nothing but my own observations, I'm not sure how the colleges are dealing with something like that now. When I was a student, the thing I wish they taught us about was tax. I wish we, they had somebody come in and talk to you how, how the tax system works and how when you're working abroad the tax system works. That would have been very so helpful. Complicated it's incredibly complicated. The social media thing, it's, it's very scary to get on stage and sing 90 minutes worth of Schubert. There's nothing to hide behind. It's you, the piano and the pianist. That's it. If you have sold yourself so much on social media that you've built something up and you've built an expectation, I think you're only adding an extra pressure on on that moment for you to walk out. I, I, I don't I do Twitter and I have Facebook things, but I'm not on it constantly um, and I'm not very good at selling myself in that way. But I think you have to keep something back for people to be revealed to reveal, sorry, to reveal to people mm. on that stage. And this instant feedback from the audience, sometimes at the, at the interval, I, I worry that artists look at a Twitter feed or something now at the interval or immediately after a concert because usually it takes a day before reviews appear online. It yeah. used to take longer when we were, we were print only. Uh, and everybody has become a critic. And of course, every opinion is, is equally valid. But this can be very damaging, I think. It can be very difficult to accept if you don't perhaps agree with what somebody says about you. But this is another thing of not comparing yourself to anybody else. You have to be very sure of your technique and how you use it. And you have to accept that some people will not like your voice. Some people will like your voice. And you have to accept that how you are presenting it is how you have decided to do it. If somebody doesn't like it, well, I'm sorry that you don't like it, but I'm not going to change for that opinion. The reason people follow an artist is because they they're touched by what that person does. I remember hearing Grace Brumbury here once, one of her, fi- her final concert actually, and it was incredibly moving. The sound was not perhaps what it was, but it was still absolutely the artistry was incredible. Was fun- yeah. But this man came up to me at the interval and said, "God, she's terrible, isn't she?" And I had to say to him, "No, she's wonderful. Perhaps don't listen to what she sounds like. Listen to what she's doing." It was so stunning. And if she had listened to some a critic her whole life, she wouldn't sound like that. It's very difficult to be very, very stubborn. And sincerity is incredibly expensive because if you start changing all the time for all that anybody says, you're not left with much. Let's talk about uh, the wonderful position you were in having a fully rounded career. Some would say it's, it's kind of old fashioned to be a leader singer, oratorio and opera because the money's in the opera. But but I think a, a fully rounded artist, certainly the happiest artists I know, are those who, who are able to do all of that. And, and you're in that wonderful position. I am incredibly lucky. It's taken a long time to get the opera up and going, but I'm incredibly lucky that I spend half my time doing operas and half my time doing concerts and recitals. And to be fair, financially, you have to do it as well. I mean, operas pay more and they pay for the rest of the time when you're learning songs and traveling for concerts. So you to have that balance is just practically important. But it's a very different type of art. The singing is the same, but the presentation is very different. And 
I've learned a huge amount from opera directors and opera colleagues, more so in rehearsal room than actually going to see an opera and seeing them on stage because you just see the result. Seeing John Tomlinson rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and he never complains and he constantly rehearses because he wants to m- something and movement to look incredibly natural. And then you see him on stage and you think, God, he's done that his whole life. No, he's done it a hundred times in the last two weeks to get that right. And and that type of craft is something that on a recital stage I don't think about because you don't have to. Everything has to come for you more uh, in the voice than in than in the in your body. And so it's been a, it's they're very different things to do, but they're so much fun. The dr- I love the drama of the opera. Um, it's it's a uh, great discipline to have. You recently stepped in in Austria for Thomas Lacher at, at, at the last minute. Yes, we did uh, Das Jagdgewehr at uh, Bregenz and I got a call. I was on a train from Paris to somewhere in south of France. I had a concert that night uh, from my agent asking me if I would look at some music. And so he sent it through. And on my phone, I'm scrolling through this music. And I said, yeah, that's possible. Um, Where and when? He said, well, the production starts tomorrow. Uh, Okay. Um, And it's in Bregenz. I said, okay, I'll do it if they realize I can't be there for 13 more days or something because we had to go to New York and do things and then come back to France. And the director said, okay, we'll wait. So I learned the music on the plane to New York and on the plane back. Did a recital here in the meantime. Indeed. Then went to Bregenz and and rehearsed and worked and it was fantastic. I think the music is brilliant. And a completely different sound world from, from our leader. Oh my goodness, yeah. A huge range, first of all. I think I don't, don't think anybody on the stage had less than two octaves. Yeah. And of course, Thomas will be in residence here in a few years' time. We've we've featured him greatly, but he will be composer in residence in, in the early 20s, which is something that we're Fantastic. looking forward to very yeah. much indeed. That was quite a strong young cast, wasn't it? It was, a v- yes. There were some some incredible voices. Well, you had the baritone André Schuon. Yes, André Schuon was absolutely wonderful. He has such a strong presence on stage he's a very elegant man but he manages to hold himself so well like uh, he's like a i was when i saw him first i I, on stage because i'd seen him here in recital but when i saw him first on stage there there's a thomas hampson-ness about him you know that that core that thomas holds well andre has that type of feeling and we're building him up here as well as a leader singer he's a very good singer very good and anybody else that you want to mention we had a wonderful soprano, Sarah, who was singing the, the, the daughter, and she had to sing over three octaves in this opera, and she was sustaining these phrases. She wasn't whistling and touching these top Fs and F sharps. She was singing very long passages with words on it. I think that she is an artist who, they, I don't think she even knows how far she could go, because she is stunning. But that also gives us an idea of the complexity of what what you're currently doing and achieving because you probably have to carry the best part of for Wigmore Hall alone in the next 12 months between 70 and 80 songs and and you learn this new score by a composer that you probably didn't really know until I'd, quite recently well I'd heard uh, the third symphony recording and I'd heard something else so I knew that the per- that percussion sound was was going to be in the orchestra, uh, but no, I didn't know a lot of the music, and it's very complicated, um, very a lot of intervals, big high jumps, and a very diff- tricky rhythm. Um, but I, I learn I learn everything the same way. 
I carry in my bag right now, I can take out the folder of music that I'm trying to learn at the moment because I sit on the tube with and 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 learn it. And I'm putting not just the words into my head, but the position of the words in my head. Um, I, I always have music. I go on holidays, I bring scores. If I'm going to sit on a plane for two hours, I'm going to read music. The way you talk about your preparation is very similar to, to how Anne Murray describes her learning process. And she's somebody who's also been very good to you throughout your career. Yes, she has. Um, I've been very lucky to get to know Anne really and Iris sort of at the same time. And they've been they've been great friends themselves. And they've both. But we should we should go back and just for the listeners, Iris Delacqua was Anne Murray's teacher for many years and became yours. So, yeah, let, let's talk about both great women together. <laughs> uh, well, t- where do I start? Um, when I was a student in Dublin, I would go to concerts and often before the concert, there would be an announcement from the stage saying, and we are delighted that M- Mrs. Molly Murray is in our audience today, of course, the mother of Anne and Molly. And I knew Molly and she's quite formidable. She was wonderful. Oh, my goodness. What a character. But I had no idea who Anne was to my total shame. But Anne didn't sing in Ireland. She didn't sing in Ireland until about 2000, maybe after years. So I remember going to that um, concert and <laughs> Molly handing me her coat <laughs> saying, you hold that and come with me. And I went to, and she just brought me to meet Anne and the nicest person I could possibly the most fantastic professional and person that you could meet. Yeah. Um, if she's been there, she's given you advice. At oh, but crucial moments. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, not just on how to sing, but how to think about it, how to approach it, how to use your body in making uh, a, um, a, both the color of the voice and something for people to look at. Um, if you she and without sort of moving, just with a thought, she's she's very physical in how she sings, which is just so wonderful. And the voice is so ravishing. No, she's been she's been very nice. But I, I can tell one little story um, for years and years. We did a charity concert on Good Friday in St. Patrick's Cathedral to raise money for the Carmichael Centre. And one year we decided we'd put on a Matthew Passion. And I asked Anne if she'd sing. And she said, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'd be delighted. And I think we paid her airfare and maybe a couple of hundred euros. Everybody, nobody was being paid a thing. We were paying expenses, and, and but she came. And the only thing she asked was a piano rehearsal before before the orchestra rehearsal. Anyway, things are running late. This Thursday, Holy Thursday services are running late and we're late setting up and I'm on my hands and knees moving chairs and things. The only other artist who helps was Anne-Marie, plugging in lights, carrying music stands. And I was moved by how humble and how generous this woman, she could have come in and played the big card, but she really didn't. And it was a really moving occasion. I'm actually tearing up thinking about it because it taught me a hell of a lot. She was she was stunning. And her career has, has is, is still going into, yeah. into her 70s. Yeah. Which is, is quite something. So I was really lucky to meet Iris through Graham Johnson, actually. And he knew I was having some problems with uh, technique and because as I was getting older, things change and I needed to work out, a, find a new path. And he suggested I call Iris Delacqua and I rang her up and she spoke for about an hour on the phone and we laughed and we joked and she said, come and meet me. So I went for a consultation and she and I had a pianist and we sang a couple of things and she said, OK, if you want to come and work with me, we want to change your 
and she listed off five things she needed to work on immediately and she said if if you work i'm happy to work if you don't work don't come and she has been a, a rock of support since i've met her she'll come to every concert that she can come to she will listen every broadcast she can hear she will write an email she will give you a lesson by email if you're across the world and you're having a problem um she is such a generous teacher and such an informed one um it's i've been incredibly fortunate to find her before she retired that was the to get her just at the right time was also very very lucky and she's given you a i think she's given you a, a freedom that you didn't have before vocally and and just in terms of your of your stage presence and how how you present yourself to us particularly in recital oh yes i mean the, the freedom comes from learning actually where the voice comes from and making sure that everything else around it uh, was working not the voice so that the voice can just go she came to a recital I think I gave a lunchtime recital here and she came and I, when I next saw her she said you didn't move I, I said no it's a recital no she said you didn't move not a, an arm I mean my, I, I don't think I stood rigid like a guardsman or anything but she this was her point that you looked artificial and the next time I went Philip Language was finishing a lesson and she said Philip talk to him about just standing and Philip said exactly the same things as Iris does in that just being a little loose being a little casual with not being this tense rock one helps your singing but also helps the audience relax they don't want to see you uh, feeling tense unless because then you can you can use it as an effect but just to relax and actually step, be able to step back and enjoy it one of the big things that Iris has given me is the enjoyment of singing the actual physical sensation of singing going through your body is it's it's a drug it's wonderful and if you're not enjoying it you wouldn't do it your mention of uh, philip reminds me of some of your performances of of britain songs here when, when did you come to to that repertoire because it's it's something that wasn't very much done in ireland no in ireland when i came to as a student here to london i think i may have heard two pieces of britain i think the the symphony had played um they had definitely done the serenade, so I'd heard the serenade and something else. But and now it suits you in, in really, really well. well. I've sort of had to go away and study it. And I heard, it was, there was a recital in the Academy of Music when I came here of, a, of the um, on cello. Robin Michael played. And I thought I'd never heard anything like this, this, this music. And I immediately went. And it's only the second time it's happened to me in my life. The first time was Winterizer. I immediately went to the shop and bought the score. I'd never heard such amazing music. But I heard this Britain and I went to the library and just started going through every song I could possibly find. It was a revelation. And going to Oldborough and the surrounding areas, do you think that there's something in the, in the, in the geography, just in, in the location, that helps you understand, that you don't fully understand Britain's sound world until you've seen all these places? I think certainly that helps for some of the operas, because uh, you actually are standing in the physical place where this character would have physically stood. Um, this, I think Britain is far more encompassing than that. Yes, he has that uh, countryside rural feel, but he's much more complicated than that. Um, he's so clever with the with the setting of the words and the, the articulations in the piano. I don't think that we can narrow him down to the core. What is fantastic about going to Albright is going to his house and going to his library, seeing the art on the walls that Piers collected 
seeing the things around him that would have influenced him, the things he liked, the little uh, details of, of things, seeing the scores where he wrote extra notes into the um, printed scores, that you can really examine and learn from. Um, but the music en encompasses so much influence from Schubert, especially Bach, Brahms, two Americans that he he, he, he knew and worked with. Uh, so there's a, there's a, a large range of music, but always immediately identifiable as Britain. You won second prize at the 2007 Wigmore Hall International Song Competition. Did that help your career move forward? Oh, certainly. I think even even just being on the poster the following year Absolutely, and then being yes. mentioned <laughs> in the book by um, Ralph Kern the year after that with how many languages I'd put in one round or something so that I got a couple of years out of it. No, absolutely. Singing in a competition was, um, it's a discipline. Yeah, that and you, it, uh, it also proves you don't necessarily have to win to, to get on the radar. Certainly. And I've said that to many people. I, if you can get to the semifinals and the finals, that's when people will hear you. And, uh, you know, singing, it's, people either like it or they don't, and you're yeah, not going to find a jury for it. It's blows yeah. on a particular day. Yeah. And, but if people can hear you, it through those last few rounds, then you've got more chance of having the career success rather than that success on the, the last night. Um, I mean, for that, one of the great pleasures I had of that competition was uh, at, uh, in the second round, I did a program about death. And Robert Hall came up to me at the end of the competition and he said that that program was perfect. Indeed. I couldn't believe it. And, and, and he it, is oh, a very fine programmer and, oh, and, and it, a very wonderful singer with a long history. Yeah. Uh, at this hall and he joins us for a farewell recital uh, in a few weeks time his his last uh, Wigmore uh, and we look forward to that very much indeed so Robin what what does singing in this hall mean to you you've you've sung here 20 times I suspect at this stage perhaps yeah I've been really fortunate to 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 sing in this great place singing here I have to sort of go back a little bit. When I first came to London, I was invited to come to Wigmore Hall by John Ruddock. He was putting on a concert here and he contacted me and said, come, it'd be great to see you. And I came. And the respect that he spoke of about the hall before I had ever been here ha already had an impression on me. So when I did come here, and first of all, it's very grand when you walk in. It's a beautiful place to sit. You're sort of ready for this, for the, for the great concert. What you're not ready for is the sound that comes. No matter where you sit in that hall, you're so close to the stage, but the sound is so crystal clear. And when you're on the stage, that's where the, it's a bit deceiving because you feel like you can do anything within that sound and you sometimes may forget to actually sing. It takes a while to get used to the acoustic, though, because the, the first of all, the empty hall that you rehearse in is completely, it's a completely different sound. Yes. You, several hundred bodies make it make a huge difference. Yeah. But I think artists, it takes three or four visits before you really begin to to get to know how to use the hall almost as an, an instrument itself. Yes. And it, it has a very large palette as to what it allows you to do. Pianismos in here are true. And there's a you can grade your whole um, dynamics on, on that. Uh, the hall. Do, do you think you take risks here that you wouldn't take elsewhere? I think you can be in what I think what happens here uh, to me is you're inspired to take risks. 
it's not something you calculate. It's something that you think, okay, you know, the last phrase I did such and such a thing. Now I can really make this float and really make, because the hall will help you carry that sound. And as I say, you're inspired to do that. And the audience is kind of willing you to do well. Yeah. They're, they're on your side. The, audience, help. the audiences here are incredible. You will often see uh, so many regular faces come to not just song recitals, but you'll see the same faces at song recitals and other chamber music recitals. You'll also have this, the vocal the purists and sound, the piano purists. People, yes, and indeed. But it's a very educated core group of people who know how difficult it is to do it. They've seen people crash and burn, I'm sure, on this stage, but they've also heard the great success and they're desperate for you to, to, to do that too. It's a very warm place to walk onto. It's a very welcoming place. It's, it's a great, great hall. And I don't know anybody who doesn't say the same. You came up through Feshkeol, which oh, is goodness. where Count John McCormack, who's probably the best known of Irish tenors, got a national platform. He went on to become internationally famous in opera, yeah. in concert, particularly uh, in the United States. Thankfully, you've avoided that Irish tenor niche. You're, you're a very proud Irish tenor. You've you've not been pigeonholed into this uh, sort of very lucrative uh, American touring round, which many of your your Irish colleagues uh, will have done. You've come out as an artist who who appears on all these platforms. That must be very gratifying. Well, I don't want to say gratifying. Uh, it's it was a decision. I didn't, and I tried to explain it by saying that when an Irish tenor is thought of in the very last years of John McCormack's life. He sang a lot and recorded a lot of these Irish tunes. He had an entire career before that of singing the greatest Mozart tenor you've ever heard. He was singing Hugo Wolf yes, just indeed. years after Hugo Wolf had died. He'd only yeah. written them a couple of years before. And there's, he, there's a misconception about what an Irish tenor is. It's a label that, that you probably wouldn't want. Yeah, and I'd wanted to, to do more than that. I wanted to be the complete singer like John McCormack was and not be focused on one thing. Um, so it was it really was a decision. I, I have had offers to go to America and do all the Irish things. And I have nothing against uh, somebody going off and making money and doing it. And neither do I have anything against the, the, the music. No, because the, when it's sung well and prepared well, it's it's wonderful repertoire. I often put Irish tunes and Irish songs into recitals all over the world. It's people love to hear it. Yes. But it also can fit the purpose of the recital that I'm presenting. And you can present it in a sincere and true manner in the, the way that I like to present any song. And I'm very conscious in this year, 2018, we're 100 years on from from the end of the First World War. And you recorded a rather wonderful disc of songs uh, written or associated with, with the First World War. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? I made a disc called No Exceptions, No Exemptions. And I was... I treated it very much as a recital. Uh, so I wanted to write, I wanted to include songs that were written by people who were directly affected by the First World War. So I narrowed it down the field as to people, composers, who both civilians and soldiers, and then found the music uh, that were written in that period. And then even I made the, I mean, it's what I like to do, unfortunately. Nobody else needs to know about it. but. As much as possible, all the poets were also affected in different wars Indeed. during their own lives. And, and given the complexity of the relationship between Ireland and, and Great Britain, it was interesting that in, in the celebration 
of the anniversary of the 1916 Rising, we were able to bring two of the songs from that yeah. recording here. The, well, yes, on, this, on the disc, there's two fantastic songs from Over the Rim of the Moon by Michael Head, uh, who was a young man working in an armory. You know, he was making the actual bullets. He was, what, 17 years old. But he chose to set Francis Ledwidge, who was a, an Irishman a, a, and a real Republican, joined the British Army because he felt that if he helped the British Army, they would then, these tens of thousands of Irishmen who joined up, they would be rewarded in allowing to have some rule at home. Um, and sadly, he got blown to bits as the was put in a letter home. Um, and these two extraordinary songs, Beautiful songs. For, for a teenager to write, they were incredible things and they're incredibly moving words. Um, and to sing them on that occasion um, at the gala here was tremendous. Robin Trichler, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you. We're very proud of all that you have achieved and we look forward to this wonderful residency and these wonderful recitals uh, over the season ahead and good luck with everything else that's going on in this ever-developing career. Thank you very much, John. Deep, deep.